0: When you're young and say you're retired, look at you like you're crazy. Yeah.
1: You're not that young, though. I don't know why they were <laughs> asking that.
2: Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies.
3: With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Welcome to a very special episode of Pennies and Popcorn, guys. Um, It's special for two reasons. One, we're talking about a particularly awesome movie today, and that is Fight Club. And also, we have two very special guests with us today uh, from our sister podcast, the Mile High Fight Club. We have Doug Cunnington and Carl Jensen. You guys want to say hi and introduce yourselves a little bit?
1: Yes, I'm Doug Huntington, and I am one of the hosts over at the Mile High Five podcast. I have my own show called The Doug Show and a blog. I have a YouTube channel, some other stuff. We're uh, sort of neighbors, and I was going to say you called us the sister podcast, but maybe we should be the, the brother podcast. Do you want to have a feminine or masculine uh, reference?
0: It doesn't matter to me, Doug. I think <laughs> listeners will know what we're talking about. Okay. And my name is Carl Jensen. I am Doug's podcast partner on Mile Hi-Fi. I started blogging a long time ago at 1500days.com. That was my journey to early retirement. And with that said, I just have to say I'm really excited to be on your podcast today because Fight Club is probably one of my favorite movies of all time. It's one of the movies that every time you watch it, you pick new things out of it, and it gets a little bit better. It holds up.
3: Yeah, I completely agree. It's such a great movie. And it just ties in so well with the financial independence movement uh, for reasons that we'll talk about as we get into all of our clips later. But in case anybody is listening and doesn't happen to know about the financial independence movement, can one of you guys like encapsulate it in just a couple sentences?
0: Yeah. So financial independence is saving up enough money to liberate yourself from the task of having to make money. It does not mean that you have to quit your job. It does not mean that you can't work again. It just means that you have enough money in your life that you no longer have to trade your time to make more of it.
3: So before we dive into Fight Club and um, the kind of reasons why the movie is such a perfect tie into the financial independence movement, let's just talk a little bit about the movie itself. Do you like it? Do you not like it? How how do you guys... I guess Carl has already said it's one of his favorite movies of all time. Robert, how do you feel about Fight Club?
2: So it's quite the cult classic. I watched it when I was younger, and it had been a long time since I'd seen it before we watched it in preparation to talk about it. But it's got a lot more deeper things going on behind the scenes than maybe I realized the first few times I'd seen it. So I like it more than I did in the past. For me, I I mean, Brad Pitt got me to the theater,
1: but I stayed (laughs) for the wonderful movie. And it was it was out in I think ninety-nine and that was a very, I guess, formative time for me. So there was a few movies that came out in that same time period that I look back, I'm like, wow, I really got great stuff out of it. And like you were both saying, it's held up extremely well. And when Carl and I had our date night the other day and watched it again, <laughs> we or I realized that there's a lot more death in there. And topics on death and like our our limited lifespan. So I think, I mean, it hit me from both the consumerism standpoint and just like living
2: and dying and all that stuff. So it's interesting that you said that Brad Pitt brought you to the theater. I was looking up some data points about the movie. Uh, To me, I thought that Brad Pitt and Edward Norton were both pretty big movie stars at the time. What do you think the pay ratio was between the two guys? Their total salaries on the movie were twenty million dollars. How much do you think of that twenty million went to Pitt versus Edward Norton?
0: I would say fifteen to Pitt and five to Norton.
3: That was my guess too, but it is wrong.
2: Yeah, it's seventeen and a half to Brad Pitt and two and a half to Edward Norton, which just blew me away. Like a seven to one pay ratio for for those two guys. I realize Brad Pitt is a megastar and you know was perhaps the sexiest man alive at the time.
3: I mean those abs, guys. I, you guys won't say it, so I'm going to say it.
0: <laughs> but
3: It's it's a thing.
2: Seven to one, That that's a surprising pay disparity between those guys. Uh,
0: no, I will say, Carla, that Brad Pitt did look good in that movie, but have you seen Doug without his shirt on? Perhaps you <laughs> did at one of my pool parties this past summer.
3: I don't think I have, so maybe. I mean, you've got a lot to live up to if he's comparing you to to Bradley there, but...
0: Yeah, I know. I'll have
1: to hit the gym just to prepare for that.
0: Yeah, Brad was oiled up. Like I noticed every time they showed him, he was all shiny. So Doug, go in the pool before you present yourself to Carla. That's, that's not,
3: that's not the thing holding
1: me back, by the way.
3: <laughs> it's supposed to be the, the sweat, right? It's all they're sweaty. Sure. Yeah.
2: So he wasn't perfectly beautiful in the movie. He did something kind of fascinating. Brad Pitt got the front of his teeth chipped intentionally before the movie. He went to a dentist and had a procedure done and then got it fixed afterwards so that he wouldn't be so perfectly put together, which that that's commitment, I guess, to the role.
1: Interesting. I think Jim Carrey did that for dumb and dumber as well. It's so a yeah. similar, similar thing. <laughs> there you
0: go. Similar movie too.
3: <laughs> Learning stuff every day.
1: Also informative. Yeah.
3: Uh, here's a fun fact for you. Do you guys know what object appears in almost every scene of the movie?
1: I noticed a Crispy Cream uh, label all over the place. So they obviously threw some money at the film.
0: I don't know. Yeah, my mind went to a bad place because I know there's some <laughs> thing, parts where they flash, I, I think, a, a, a <laughs> penis in there very quickly. So I don't know if that's it. And I just didn't pick up on it, but probably would have picked up on it. So <laughs> I, I know that's not it.
3: <laughs> uh, it is not a penis, although I do think they did splice a super, super fast penis. Into like the before the very last shot of the movie when you see Helena Bonham Carter and Edward Norton standing there looking out over the cityscape, I think there is a penis that just goes by like that. Mm. Um, so there's one, but no, that is not the object that I was referring to. Um, it is a Starbucks coffee cup. Almost every scene. Mm-hmm. Wow. If you go back and watch it, you'll notice, them. they're all over the place which i think and yeah there's a lot of product placement in the movie and i think it's supposed to be a commentary on just how branded our lives all are and which yeah reminds me a little bit of infinite jest the book i don't know if you guys have heard of infinite jest Look at that! That I can take it. You have. <laughs> it's so
0: funny, Carla. Real quick side diversion. I picked up the book and I didn't realize it was from the guy who wrote the lobster book that you had recommended oh, to yeah. me and let me borrow. I'm like, oh, it's the same
3: person. It is.
0: I haven't finished the book yet, though.
3: It took me about a year, <laughs> and it's so heavy. Like you have to kind of get yourself in the right mindset to to read it. So yeah, I read it slowly over a very long time period. But it is that book is all about like the branding of our lives to the point where they start referring to years no longer by number but by brands so like most of the book i think takes place in the year of the depends adult undergarment it's pretty (laughs) great um yeah that's kind of a similar vibe to fight club in a lot of ways a lot of dark humor so if you like fight club and you haven't checked out infinite jest and you're ready to read like a 1200 page book you should check it out
0: so on that note real quick one follow-up do you think starbucks would have been happy or mad that their cup was in there because it's free advertising. But on the other hand, the whole movie is a commentary on consumerism. So they're showing that cup as irony.
3: Well, I mean, I know that Starbucks was okay with it. And actually, I think there's a scene involving a coffee shop getting blown up that they wanted to be a Starbucks. And Starbucks said, no, we draw the line there. You can put our coffee cups all over, but you can't blow us up. So I guess they were okay with it.
2: I think it's a scene where the big ball is rolling into the building. And yeah, no Starbucks for that. Yeah. It sure looked like one. I was thinking Starbucks the whole time. <laughs> exactly. So when I first watched the movie, I didn't realize that a musical hero of mine was a main cast member in the show. Uh, I didn't know back in the day that Bob was played by Meatloaf. Uh, I have to admit I had the "Bat Out of Hell" cassette, "Bat Out of Hell" two cassette back in the day, and my college roommate went through a Meatloaf phase, and it seemed like every couple of weeks he would start playing, you know, lots of his favorite hits in, in our apartment. A lemon. So, do you, either of you guys have any favorite Meatloaf hits?
1: I'm actually not a big fan. I only know like <laughs> one or two of the the songs, and um, I couldn't if you forced me. I don't know if I could come up with one song. There's something, uh something dashboard.
2: Paradise by the dashboard yeah. light. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, two out of three ain't bad. Objects in the rear view mirror may appear closer than they are.
0: I, I've only heard the one Doug referenced and that I would do anything for love. And I think Doug Doug's gonna do an open night soon. And I think Doug <laughs> that song is like twenty-eight minutes long, but kind of the inagata Davida of our yeah. generation. But maybe you should do that at open mic night. Yeah. It'll be a duet with
2: us both. <laughs> oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> You took the words right out of my mouth. That's another Meatloaf thing. Yeah.
3: yeah, Meatloaf was really a good actor in this movie. He did a surprisingly good job for someone who, as best I can tell, hasn't did not act before or after this movie.
2: See, that's where you're mistaken. If huh? you were a true Meatloaf lover, you would know <laughs> that he had a big start in the theater, and he was more of an actor before he became a musical recording artist. Uh, he was in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, he's done a lot of stage work. Yeah, he's uh, quite the talented person. Well, there you go.
3: There you go. So huh. one other interesting thing about the movie, I think, is that it's it's kind of been adopted as like an emblematic movie by a couple different groups. I think the Financial Independence Group is definitely one of them. I bet if you asked like a random group of five people to name the movie that best represents five, you'd, you'd get a lot of people saying Fight Club back. Um, but i can't let it go by without talking about like the toxic masculinity and like male rights activists and involuntary celibates which is such a creepy subgroup on the internet but they have also like really latched on to this movie which i think is interesting and chuck polaniak the guy who wrote the book that this is based on thinks that that's just kind of hilarious and he said in interviews like i you're just you're missing the point of the movie and i actually have a quote by him where he says uh, he didn't see Fight Club as particularly gendered. It was more about the terror that you were going to live or die without understanding anything important about yourself. So he was obviously going for, like, really important themes in the book, and it was definitely not supposed to be a movie about dudes getting angry because they
0: (laughs) can't get women
3: to like them, and, like, this is why we're pissed off at the world, and this is why it's justifiable.
0: Okay, Carla, can you repeat that Chuck quote one more time? Because I think that was really important and deep, and I never heard that before, what he wanted people to get out of it.
3: Yeah, he says, it was not a, a, a gendered movie or book. It was more about the terror that you were going to live or die without understanding anything important about yourself.
0: Wow, and that's such a cool tie into the whole Phi movement because when you don't have to work 40 or 50 hours a week, you have time to explore and introspect and learn more about yourself.
3: Yeah, I completely agree. It's amazing how life kind of opens up and you can learn things about yourself, learn things about the world that you just flat out didn't have time for before.
0: And work on cool projects with your
3: friends. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely.
2: So Carla, this movie came out 22 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't want to give away too many spoilers. We'll do better than Rosie O'Donnell did in 1999 when she gave a huge spoiler and I think encouraged her audience not to see the movie.
3: Yeah, which I should say, when I first saw it in probably like 99 or 2000, I didn't finish it. I got to, this is a tiny spoiler, but not really. I got to the chemical burn scene and I just couldn't do it. It just totally put me off and I didn't finish. And then, of course, I've seen it many, many times after that. And yeah, if you push through that difficult scene, you get a lot of really good stuff. But yeah, I think Rosie O'Donnell felt the same way and... Yeah, she got on national television and not only completely spoiled the movie for everyone, but advocated people not to see it. So we are not going to be Rosie O'Donnell today. <laughs> we will not spoil the crit- most critical plot point for you guys.
1: Why Why did she do that? That seems
2: crazy. I don't know if it was intentional or just a, a, an error or, no, or I, what. I
3: I think it was intentional. I think she just hated the movie so much that wow. she wanted to take it in whatever way she could and ruining it is a pretty good way to do that. Yeah.
0: Interesting.
1: Cause it did have like big names behind it. So it's not like she was going after some random movie. Interesting.
3: Yeah. Maybe she was like these men who seem to misunderstand the movie and embrace it for the wrong reasons. And she just didn't, didn't get it. Didn't watch it carefully enough. Hmm. I don't know.
2: Well, it is a cult classic. It only made about $100 at the box office. So Carla, do you want to give us kind of a plot rundown just in case people somehow have... Maybe they've forgotten.
3: Yeah, so we'll just keep it super brief and high level. So basically, you've got this office worker, kind of drone person played by Edward Norton, who is referred to simply as the narrator throughout the film. And he's on a flight, headed back home from a work trip, and he meets this guy named Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt, and they kind of hit it off, have a good conversation with each other. Brad Pitt gives him a card. Edward Norton gets home to discover that his apartment has been mysteriously blown up. Was it a gas week of some sort? We don't know. And kind of on a whim, Edward Norton calls Brad Pitt, and they end up getting together for drinks, and then Brad Pitt like asks him to stay with him if he needs a place to stay since he has no apartment. And they end up living together, becoming really good friends, and they start a little boxing club together, a.k.a. Fight Club. And slowly, Edward Norton becomes less and less enamored of his old life and his job, and becomes a little bit more like Tyler Durden, who is living in this like completely ramshackle, run-down, like, truly terrible house.
2: Yeah, they're definitely living in squalor in the movie.
3: Yeah, like barely standing kind of house.
2: But I think through their fight club, maybe they learn a little bit about themselves or believe they are and pull in a bunch of other people as well, sort of rejecting some of the modern societal notions of consumerism and live the life on their terms.
3: With all of that in mind, should we take a listen to our very first clip?
2: We're not your job.
4: Not how much money you have in the bank. Not the car you drive. Not the contents of your wallet.
2: Not your fucking khakis. So you're not your khakis, but you're not your job. That I think that's something that so many people struggle with or that they, they build their life around. And I, I think the FI community that you guys you know, do a show about is really interesting because it's all about shedding your job as an identity uh, as a label something that you have to do and i don't know how, how does that how does that fit in the fi community and how do people pull that off because so many people struggle with it
0: yeah i just did a quick calculation and my calculation was how many hours we are awake in a week assuming we sleep eight hours a night and that comes out to 112 hours if you have, so a normal job, we'll just say 40 hours per week, but then there's a commute and a lot of us don't have normal jobs. So let's assume half your waking hours are taken up by your job. Of course, it's going to be your identity. These are the people you spend more time with than probably your spouse. I remember when I was working, I've got two kids. I would spend more time with my coworkers than my spouse. So it's very, very difficult to not let your job become your identity. And that is the hard thing about FI because you're not just giving up a job. In an income source, we're giving up something that's defined us and we're giving up the friends, these people who we might have spent time with and bonded with because we struggled over our job and the tasks. It might have been a good struggle, and that forms even stronger bonds. So yeah, I think that's probably what people struggle with more so in financial independence than the actual money part of it.
3: Yeah, I think that's definitely true for a lot of folks. It's it was true for me. I felt very defined as a lawyer, you know, you go to school. I mean, it's three years. You go to school for three years to have that identity as an attorney, study for the bar. And then for a lot of lawyers, definitely for me, you spend so many hours at the office. It was way more than half of my waking hours. And it just, I mean, what else is there if it's not that? If that's not who you are, then there's just like the tired version of you that comes home and like crashes and watches TV for a couple of hours and eats like frozen pizza because that's all you have time or energy to make and so you're either that like tired, harried, exhausted person or you're the person at the office and obviously you're going to go with the person at the office. So yeah, it really becomes who you are in a very consuming way and now that I've stepped back from it and just do a lot less lawyering, it's really fun to find out that life's pretty great without all of that pressure and that you can be a whole and complete person without, you know, wearing that title of lawyer on your chest all the time.
0: So I have one follow-up question for you, Carla. I'm about to throw you under the Cadillac. (laughs) I, I believe in a previous interview for our own podcast, you said you had a Misty gold cadillac, was that correct? Did I get the color right?
3: Gold mist, but close enough. Gold mist. And and good memory. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. So my question was, and I think some of the dangers we fall into when we have, especially a job like that, a higher powered job, is it not only becomes our life, but then we allow it to change our value system. I know you have long since disposed yourself of the car and you're kind of like an anti fancy car person. Now you've done Pacific Coast Trail, all these big hikes, and you don't live like that. So Do you have any commentary on that, the risk of letting, especially a job like that, change who you are and change your fundamental values?
3: I mean, it's almost not even a risk. It's just virtually guaranteed to happen. Yeah, you, you just get into this environment where everyone around you is dressing a certain way and living in certain houses and driving certain cars and talking about the really nice restaurants that they eat at on the weekends and the trips that they're planning. And if you don't do those things, you feel less than and you feel left out and you feel like this oddball that just doesn't fit into this world where you presumably want to be. I mean, you put in all this work to get there. So it's an extremely hard thing to turn the volume down on all that noise and say, I would like to do something different. This isn't what's making me happy. I'm going to choose a different path. And I think one of the things that's so great about blogs like yours and podcasts like y'all's, to use a Texas term, um, <laughs> is that it there is like another community that you can be a part of that helps you build that sense of identity. It's almost like training wheels that you're like, okay, I'm leaving this community. I can be part of another one. And That'll help me, you know, feel like my identity is coming from somewhere else than the office. But that draw of lifestyle creep is just riptide powerful. So it's hard to tear yourself away from it.
1: And I have uh, a question for you, Carl. So it's common for people to say, hey, what do you do? Because that's just a thing that people will ask. So you've been retired for like four and a half years now. So you're at a dinner party. You're having conversation with someone you haven't met before. They say, what do you do? How do you answer?
0: That's a great question. I used to immediately answer that with, I'm retired. And people would either give you a blank stare or start asking all kinds of weird questions. Like, do you have a a terminal illness? I think I was actually asked that once. Like, "Are, are are you near death? Did you stop your job? Because you don't have much time left. So I actually do not say that anymore. I tell people, oh, I'm kind of an entrepreneur. I have a different I have a bunch of different pursuits. We have a podcast, I own a retail space on Main Street, I write on a blog for for a little bit. And that usually is equally perplexing to people, but <laughs> I guess it sits better with me, but the when you're young and say you're retired, people look at you like you're crazy. Yeah. You're not that young though. I don't know why they were <laughs>
2: asking that. Correct. <laughs> so what should we be asking instead of what do you do at a dinner party? So I was at a dinner party where
1: uh, actually I, I didn't know a handful of people. And I, d- I said, Hey, what do you do? Or I said, ah, you know what? Now what do you do? I'm just like, how do you spend your time? Because you're, you're probably not whatever your job is. So how do you spend your time? What do you like to do? And that kind of opened it up. And she was like, ah, some kind of marketing shit. And then there was <laughs> uh, you know, other, th- her hobbies which is really what I was asking. So, and I I was curious because I'm in the same position now, podcaster big enough where you can say podcaster and people are like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And then they'll accept that as an answer.
3: Yeah, that question, what do you do? I think it's actually the right question. We just interpret it wrong. Like you want to ask somebody, what do you do with your time? Right? But instead we just hear, what do you do for work? Like that's the parenthetical that we put in there after it, even though people don't say it. Yeah, I think we're just all interpreting it wrong. That's the right question, but we put the wrong spin on it because we're all so obsessed with work and we put in so many hours at work. That's like all we have. So right question, wrong interpretation. That's my hot take on that.
0: And it's a great callback back to that clip you showed because we talked about how identity is our job and our interpretation of it is us interpreting that our immediate answer is our job. So, here is how I identify myself. I'm an engineer, or I'm a pilot, or I do whatever. That's yeah. how we choose to identify ourselves in our culture.
3: So, should we transition into our next clip? Sure. So, in this scene, we see Edward Norton talking about his nesting instinct and the drive that we all have to accumulate things. So, let's take a listen.
2: Like so many others, I had become a slave to the Ikea nesting instinct.
4: Uh, yes. I'd like to order the
2: Erica Pakari dust ruffles. Please hold. If I saw something clever, like a little coffee table in the shape of a yin-yang, I had to have it. The Klipsk personal office unit, the Hovertrack home exerbike, or the Ohana sofa with the string green stripe pattern. Even the Rizlampa wire lamps of environmentally friendly, unbleached paper. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? I had it all. Even the glass dishes with tiny bubbles and imperfections. Proof that they were crafted by the honest, simple, hardworking, indigenous peoples of wherever.
3: Okay, there's so much to talk about. Before we really get into it, I have to note that if you're listening, listening to this and not watching on YouTube... The scene starts off with Edward Norton sitting on a toilet, flipping through the Ikea catalog. And I read online that apparently he actually was wearing no pants in that movie and was peeing on the toilet all day as he was filming <laughs> the scene. And apparently he said to the director years later that that was the case. And the director was like, what? I didn't know that. And he said, didn't you notice I didn't have to go to the bathroom all day? So... <laughs> Fun factory. But okay, let's dig into the real meat of this clip because there's so much going on. Point one is this idea that we are all slaves to the consumerism ideal. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you guys feel like you have ever been slaves to consumerism?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like I still slip into it occasionally, especially we're recording this around the holidays. It's December right now. So You know, there's all these marketing messages coming at us. And have have you all read um, a book called Influence by Robert Cialdini? No. It's a great marketing book and it can be used for like good or evil, but it, it tells you how you are being marketed to. And it's a great tool for marketers, which is why I read it. But it also tells you how to recognize those messages coming at you so you can defend yourself or realize that you're being marketed to and evaluate it whatever whatever the product is based on based on its actual merit so and like i said i slip back into it occasionally and i I try to like i said evaluate things like do i actually need this would i buy it um for a huge amount of money or not but it's it's so easy because the marketing messages are so powerful and then it depends on who you're hanging around with so like, like the group that we have here in Longmont is great. Um, usually people are not driving really fancy cars. They're not wearing really fancy clothes. Most of the time, Carl and I wear like sweatpants and stuff.
0: I, d- I dressed up for today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: he has a shirt with a hood on it.
3: Big one.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I struggled more with the marketing as a kid. You always felt the need to fit in. And thinking on it now, it's interesting because if you sit there and watch commercials, every truck commercial has some dude driving around like in the snow or or on a mountain road in his pickup truck. And most pickup trucks probably never see that kind of action. They go to the grocery store and back it. You see a beer commercial and it's a bunch of dudes hanging out, watching a football game, giving each other high fives. So it goes back to this identity thing. They're not actually trying to sell us a product. They are, but they're trying to sell us an identity, a lifestyle. If you drink this beer, you can be cool and sit in your buddy's basement and give each other high fives all day and all that. But yeah. Back to me, I guess I've been pretty resistant to it. I just don't give a shit anymore. If people mm-hmm. want to judge me for my pants, they're not worthwhile being my friend. And I had to change pants actually today because the pair I had on, Mindy's like, how did you get those stains on the front? Like, I, I don't know. She's like, did you even wash them? Like yeah of course i wash them these are just like paint stains or something like that she's like go change pants you are not leaving the house (laughs) so i got
1: got two things sorry to interrupt you man um carl and i are probably gonna have some clothing line coming out and it will be pre-stained that's part of the thing uh potentially by (laughs) us we may actually wear everything once and then get it out the door and uh the other is you know you pointed out some commercials People drinking beer, driving a pickup truck. Like, that's my life. That—that That is exactly what I have, man. What are you saying?
0: I drive in the snow. Okay, so I've thrown Carla under the Cadillac. I've thrown Doug under his pickup truck. Robert, you're next. I haven't figured out how, how to insult you, but I'll figure something out.
3: So, Robert, do you feel like you've been a slave to consumerism? Or are you still as we sit here today?
2: I feel like I have avoided it a lot, but I, I'm struggling to come up with a good example, but surely I have fallen victim like everyone else has. I'm not impervious to to marketing and all that stuff. I, I think it's gotten me in the past. What gets me from this clip is the way that he's hating on Ikea. Right? <laughs> is that is Ikea like higher class than I was thinking?
3: I mean, I get it. Ikea markets like crazy. They used to send out those paper catalogs that they're talking about in the movie. And yeah, I think there was this definite temptation to just sit there and flip through that catalog and be like, this looks nice. That looks nice. So maybe that's, maybe it was more about the catalog, which they don't have anymore. But yeah. I mean, I think in the FI community, it's generally thought of as like a super awesome, pretty good quality, but low cost option for furniture and like kitchen stuff.
2: I mean, you're taking a discount because you get to do the assembly.
3: I think they should be hating on like Neiman Marcus or Pottery Barn. Yeah, Restoration Hardware.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. One of the saddest days of my life. I'll back up a second. The only IKEA close to us is like on the other side of Denver. We're north of Denver, so if we want to go to a freaking IKEA, we got to drive through Denver in traffic, and it's like an all-day expedition. So whenever I go, I always ping our our Discord group saying, hey, I'm going to Ikea, who needs something? And inevitably two or three people will chime in. So one of the saddest days of my life, I don't know if you all know this because you're new to the area. Ikea was supposed to build a location much closer to us, like 10 miles away across the street from a Thornton Costco, and they canceled their plans. Like, no, (laughs) Ikea, I need you closer. But yeah, agreed. Why do they hate on Ikea? I just put in an Ikea kitchen in my house like moments ago.
1: The other part is I haven't been into an actual physical IKEA in many years, but the maze that they set up so you can't get out. I think people might not like that.
3: That's true and that's totally fair because I this is definitely us falling victim to consumerist crap, you could say. When we go to IKEA, we often leave with at least a few little kitchen items that we didn't plan on buying. Like we go there for the bookcase, we come home with the bookcase and a whisk, and a <laughs> spatula, and some new glasses. Which, you know, did we truly need them? Probably not.
2: Yeah. I, I just like the way it's set up for exercise, right? You gotta go get your steps in. <laughs> Walk around. It's I'm sure that's time.
3: I'm sure that's the general yeah. goal.
2: They're a more health-conscious culture over there in Sweden. I'm I mean, sorry. that's
3: probably true. So let's take a listen to our next clip. This is Edward Norton and Brad Pitt talking in a bar and there's some background noise in this scene, which is just what it is, so listen closely. Um, But they're in this bar. This is after Edward Norton's apartment has blown up and they're just kind of getting to know each other better and they start talking about all of the stuff that Edward Norton lost in the explosion.
2: I had it all. I had a therapy that was very decent. A wardrobe that was getting very respectable. I was close
4: to being complete. Shit, man, now it's all gone. All gone. (sighs) All gone. We are consumers. We are byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. Murder, crime, poverty, these things don't concern me. What concerns me are celebrity magazines, television with 500 channels, some guy's name on my underwear, Rogaine, Viagra. Lester, Martha Stewart, fuck Martha Stewart. Martha's polishing the brass on the Titanic. It's all going down, man. So fuck off with your sofa units and string green stripe patterns. I say never be complete. I say stop
2: being perfect. The things you own end up owning you. Lots of
3: lots of good stuff there.
2: Yeah. The idea that stuff can make you complete is kind of a fascinating thing. He was—he was almost there, right? He was almost finished. Have you ever had anything that you've got that made you feel that way?
0: I'm still searching for it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I've had experiences that have made me feel good and complete and really comfortable as a person. Just like a nice night with a bunch of friends, uh, having great conversation, and that's made me feel complete. I can't think of any object that has made me. Feel complete.
3: You guys didn't get that one dinner plate that just like did it for you? I mean, we've we've got that plate at our house. It's a pretty good plate. The red one? Yeah.
1: (laughs) I've seen that one. I've seen it.
3: Yeah, I think it's so crazy this idea that there's like an object that will somehow make your life dramatically better or make you feel better as a human being. Because well, I actually do think there are objects you can purchase that have a significantly positive effect on your life, but they are objects that require something out of you. They're not objects that just sit there like a plate or Mm -hmm. a sofa or really a house even. I suppose maybe the location of a house could add a a really great dimension to your life, but things that that challenge you. So like tools, um, musical instruments, Things that go along with a hobby that you're actually going to spend a lot of time on. So are there things like that that you guys have in your life that you think do genuinely improve your life?
1: Yeah. And I was thinking of you with your piano and I have recently purchased a few guitars and that makes me happy. But you're right. You have to like put in the time and like use those objects like tools or whatever as well. So, yeah. It, it made me happier. I mean, I'm still searching for the right guitar. You know, you're never going to find the right perfect one. You got to keep looking.
0: Yeah. You took the words out of my mouth, Carla, because I was thinking tools because tools allow you to build something cool, which I enjoy and make something beautiful and solve a puzzle or solve a challenge, which I believe is what really is the cause of happiness. Um, again, that dangerous four letter word work.
2: Yeah, for me, it's some of our hiking and backpacking gear. So whenever I, I see my backpack, which it wasn't super expensive or anything, uh, one, I love all the places it's taken me, but two, every time I see it, it just makes me think back on all those those fun memories, whereas the, the red plate doesn't.
3: <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify, we don't have like some awesome red plate. It's just like our, we, we have like a multicolor set of dinner plates and I'm pretty sure one of them is red, yeah. but it's just a plate. But yeah, I mean, like a really, like a good pair of hiking boots could be an object that brings significant joy and happiness into your life because it gives you the tools to get outside and have experiences and do things that are challenging and fulfilling and fun. So yeah, I think this goes back to that classic question, can money buy happiness? And I think it. Can actually go a long way towards buying really valuable things like time and freedom and tools to help you challenge yourself in new ways. But plates and clothes and bed sheets and sofas and yin yang coffee tables, <laughs> you're just not going to cut it. They're not going to do anything for you.
0: Yeah, it's so inter- interesting. The common theme with all our answers, Robert's, yours was hiking gear. Doug's, yours was guitars and mine was tools is it's not the object itself that's providing happiness. It's the experience that those objects provide and lead to that gives us the happiness. So, but I have a question for all, all of you. If Can you think of any object you would buy, regardless of price, like super expensive, super cheap, that would give you happiness? I've got one that's very expensive and I'm curious to see if you three have any answers to this question.
3: You mean like a like a hobby type? Well, like object a, or like a like a shirt type object. It,
0: it could be anything like some object that would make you genuinely happier like would a Steinway piano make you happier?
3: I mean if you're offering to buy me a Steinway <laughs> I'm not going to say <laughs> no to you. Um, yeah well this I think that's an interesting question because it gets into like degrees. So I've got a kick-ass piano at home. It's a really really nice upright you know acoustic piano but if I could get a Steinway for free, like, you know, obviously one that's in really good shape, I would be ecstatic, it would be super fun, because I'm sure it would provide, like, an incremental increase in the quality of the sound. But it wouldn't make me any happier, because I already have a piano, and, like, it's the challenge of learning new pieces, and, you know, studying music theory, and all, all of that is what's fun about a piano. And you can get that out of a, you know, pretty crappy little keyboard. So, yeah, I think it's... When you get into scales of luxury, um, going towards the higher end of things is probably not going to make a big jump in your happiness. I think just having the object itself and getting that experience out of it is probably the most important part.
2: I can't think of anything like that that would give me lasting appreciation, but maybe I'm just deluding myself and I've I've put blinders on so I don't get (laughs) attached to things I can't afford.
3: But I'm dying to know. What is your example?
0: Oh, let's hear it. I think Doug has something in mind. I'd like to hear what Doug has to say.
1: It might be cheating a little bit because it's not like a, you know, uh, like a product you can easily go buy, but probably like a rustic cabin like out in the mountains would be pretty cool. Like, you know, no fancy amenities, but like a uh, cast iron like stove in there to keep it warm and cook on. And like I said, rustic. I think that'd be pretty fun.
0: Doug, it sounds like a Walden Pond situation. Yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe a unibomber situation. There's a fine line between those two. Very
1: close, yeah.
0: Ted, Ted Kaczynski is a Colorado resident. He's south of us in the Supermax. <laughs> D- don't go there, Doug. You'd have to get more hair. <laughs> uh, my object is I really like to travel. I don't like to sit still. I like to see new places. And travel is the wrong word. I just like to explore a lot. So there are is this new class of vehicles coming online called evital's electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft so it's about the size of a car they've they're electric lithium ion batteries you could take off like a helicopter it transitions to horizontal flight so you could be somewhere very quickly and very safe if i could get one of those that i could have at my house that i could be in rocky mountain national park in like 10 minutes instead of the crappy drive or be in drango in like an hour instead of the eight hour drive i even if it was like three hundred thousand dollars, i would that thing without hesitation a four-seater one so i could take some of you along on my adventures
2: <laughs> well thanks carl that's, sure it's quite nice it does make me think of a quote from the movie here where tyler durden says the stuff you own ends up owning you and i get nervous about that with like big toys and i think both of the things you guys suggested like a cabin in the woods or a personal helicopter <laughs> 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 do you think do you think those fall into that trap of like all of the hidden costs of your time and energy that go into the hundred percent
1: total yeah totally and it turns out you can rent places like i described for pretty cheap and then you don't have to put up with any of the stuff and it's much cheaper in the long run probably because i wouldn't like live in this uh walden cabin situation it would just be like a weekend here or there yeah
0: Yeah, one of the things that's appealing about the Evitaal versus uh, aircraft is you don't have to keep it at an airport, so there's none of those fees. It's electric, so you don't have the expense of maintenance. I definitely would not buy this if it would complicate my life. And uh, a tangent, Robert, I want to comment on something you said. On Monday, I actually lectured at uh, in in Boulder at the University of Colorado, and one of the students asked, I always hear this, quote, more money, more problems. Do you think that's true? And my answer was, it can be true, but it doesn't have to be. And it is true if you let your money change you, change your values and buy a bunch of crap that's just going to consume your time and valuable mental bandwidth. But it doesn't have to be the same way. I think probably one of the most valuable things that I learned from Mr. Money Mustache is just because you have money, it doesn't have to change the person you are. You could still work on your own car or do your own carpentry, even if you have millions of dollars. I have no idea how much Mr. Money Mustache has, but I know... he has enough to pay for all these things, but he's the same exact person he was before he quit, except maybe like Breed was at the airport or something. I think he said recently, you don't have to let money corrupt your life and it will create problems if you let it.
3: I'm listening to this audio book right now called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. I think that's how you say it. He was talking about you know this luxury trap and he actually used the example of email that you know, you used to have to like get out a piece of paper and a pen and write down a letter and then go all the way to the post office and put a stamp on it and send it to somebody and then wait a few days for them to get it. And that seemed like such a pain. And when email came about, it seemed like, oh, this is gonna be this amazing thing. We're all gonna have so much more time. We don't have to work, you know, longhand write letters and go to the post office. And then of course it ended up just completely dominating our lives and so many workers are slaves to their emails now. And I was thinking as he was talking about this, about teleportation, like that's the dream, right? It would be so great if we could just hop on a little machine and be in like Paris for the day or something. And then as I was thinking about his email example, I thought, man, I wonder if it would be as awesome as I'm thinking, or would it turn into this thing where, you know, if you're someone who has a more demanding job than I do these days, you're just expected to like be somewhere in person all the time Because all you have to do is hop in the machine. It's super easy. Just get in your teleportation device. So random little side tangent, but I don't know. I wonder if the helicopter would be like a step towards that. And then (laughs) you would be like, well, just hop in your, what is it? Evital?
0: Yeah, Evital.
3: (laughs) Hop in your Evital. and you can be here in 10 minutes. Like, what's the problem? I expect you to be here all the time. So I don't know.
0: Unintended consequences. It's a fine line, Doug. Doug, don't Mm -hmm. become the Una Dugger. (laughs)
3: Uh, interesting interesting questions
2: yeah i think you and i we had our own little goofy experience buying a big toy that took up time and you know the stuff we owned ended up owning us even though we told ourselves for years we weren't going to we bought a sailboat while we were in dallas and carla for years was like no we're not gonna do anything like that that's a dumb idea we should just rent it and of course we failed bought the sailboat and had a lot of maintenance issues, needed to deal with it, felt guilty about not going to use it on times so when we were too busy. The stuff we owned ended up owning us.
3: If only someone could have predicted that. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, um,
2: I wish we could find people with that kind of wisdom in the world.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Did
0: Robert just get thrown under the boat? I think so. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, we're all equal now.
2: I had to go down there a few times for maintenance anyway. (laughs) That's
3: true. You did. You did take that one for the team. But again, something you would not have had to do if we were just renting a sailboat. So let's take a listen to our next clip. This is down in this kind of warehouse basement, I think, where they are holding the actual fight club and brad pitt is giving a little speech to the men that are gathered there for fight club
4: man i see in fight club the strongest and smartest men who've ever lived i see all this potential and i see a squandering god damn it an entire generation pumping gas waiting tables slaves with white collars Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. We're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. We're slowly learning that fact.
2: We're very, very pissed off. Well, working jobs we hate to buy shit we don't need. Um, I, think, I think a lot of people can resonate with that.
3: Yeah, it's actually very similar to a George Carlin quote. We buy shit we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how do you guys feel about that? Do you feel like you have worked jobs you hated to buy shit you didn't need to impress people you didn't like?
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was my whole corporate career, (laughs) basically. I think towards the tail end, I kind of got away from that mindset and realized that I was – doing exactly what he mentions that Tyler mentions there um and as like i mentioned before the community that we're in we are around people that are like pulling us in not necessarily the opposite or right direction but a different direction that allows you to make your own decisions so that makes me feel a little bit better so yeah i think i'm mostly on track now but
4: yeah i've worked
1: i've worked those jobs
0: Yeah, I think, Carla, your sounds like the worst, but my first job out of school, it was kind of a little car race. And what I mean by that is everyone would buy these nice cars. And then the tradition was you would send an email out to the whole department with a picture of the car you bought. (laughs) For some reason, I I like cars. I'm a car person. I actually had an expensive car at one point in my life, but it was pretty annoying. And I remember at one point, my boss, Ginger, got a, a car. And she came up to me and said, Carl, you have to get one of these 2 I'm like, well, why? I'm like, the car I have works fine now. It gets me here and back. She's like, no, no, you need this car. I'm like, why do I need it? She's like, well, you need to project wealth to other people. I'm like, why do I need to do that? And I could tell this is going to go in a bad situation. She's like, well, you're single. And if you want to find someone, if one of your goals in life is to find a partner, you have to project wealth so they know that you're wealthy. Or that you have money. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'd rather do the opposite. I'd rather drive a piece of shit and have someone appreciate me for who I am instead of that, which was the decision I ended up going with. And she ended up divorced and I am married 20 years later. So she was a very nice person. I think she's just a, and a great boss. Ginger, if you're listening, I'm sorry. But <laughs> just a little bit too caught up in the whole corporate rat race.
2: I was going to say, Carla, I'm going to throw you under the boat. This time, so back in in our Dallas days, you were working at your big law job, <clears throat> and you wanted us to buy a different house. So we bought our our house when we were living in DFW, in a suburb in two thousand nine. Not an ideal time from a financial stability standpoint. People were losing jobs left and right, and and we bought something that we could comfortably afford out in the suburbs, in a neighborhood that was not respected. It was fine. We liked it. It was perfect for us, but. We didn't want to bring anybody from your fancy law firm over. That, that wouldn't have gone over well. And you wanted us to buy a crazy expensive house in a fancy neighborhood that was the right neighborhood that was the okay place to be. And I had the wisdom <laughs> that, that you shouldn't be working at a job you hate to buy stuff we didn't need. Well, Maybe not the working at the job you hate part. I, I still wanted you to keep doing that. But <laughs> we, did, we didn't need that fancy house
3: yeah I think that's such an interesting dynamic and an interesting time in our lives. I think when I was in that mode of really, really wanting to buy a fancy house, and it was a serious problem, like I was like an addict jonesing for it. I just felt like I need we needed to live in the right place, and it was just so important to me so yeah, it was definitely a problem, but I don't think I had begun to completely hate my job yet. it was pre I got to get out of here. Also, I will say, I think we like messed up and cheaped it out too much buying that house because it was in a neighborhood that was <laughs> so bad that it didn't appreciate like at all. The houses that I was wanting us to buy were just like a smidge nicer at that point. And they appreciated like crazy so every now and then I'll go back in like old emails and pull the addresses of houses that we almost bought and show Robert DeZillo reports of like how much those houses appreciated versus <laughs> how much the house we did buy appreciated. So I was not crazy in wanting us to buy like a slightly nicer house in a slightly nicer neighborhood. But it was it was down the road that I was like, No, we should upgrade even more.
2: Yeah, I think you changed the subject. We're talking about your errors, not mine. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm so
3: confused. Mm-hmm. But you are totally right. Like after we bought that house, you know, a few years down the road, I was just absolutely champing at the bit for us to buy a dramatically nicer house, which I think I definitely would have regretted pretty soon after.
0: One one comment and one observation of you two is: I think you are the audience for Fight Club because you are living the life, and I'm so impressed because I don't think most people do what you did. You are living with the the mist gold gold mist I'll, I'll never get a right cadillac and and all that a fancy life considering these houses and then you you pivoted you did a 180 and completely you didn't throw it out completely I know you still do a little bit of work but it's a different much different kind of work it's a good type of work not that your previous work was bad but now you're you're helping people I know with your attorney skills and you just you completely pivoted and did something else with your life and that's impressive and I think that's the message to fight club I think Chuck would be Proud to hear your story. In your case, the book did what it was supposed to do.
3: Uh, I hope so, at least on a good day.
2: It took a lot of fighting to get there.
3: (laughs) That's true. We had our own little personal (laughs) fight club in our house going on. Yeah. (laughs) One thing that is interesting, though, is this clip. Um, You know, obviously, the way that these men are dealing with this sense of malaise and frustration that they have, is to beat each other up and then, you know, things get progressively worse as the movie goes on. So, yeah, I think redirecting your life and choosing things that actually make you happy is a much healthier way to deal with that than, you know, punching one another in the face.
0: So I think you you hit on something there. And my favorite theme of the whole movie is, and I it took me our most recent watch to realize this is, But I'll back up a second. One of my favorite lines is early in the movie when Ed Norton is sitting on the plane. Uh, His life hasn't gone crazy yet. He's still working his corporate job. But he's sitting on the plane talking about how shitty his life is. And he said, I prayed for a disaster. And then another part, you mentioned the soap part where Brad Pitt's character is burning Ed Norton's character with the lie. And Ed Norton is sitting there screaming and Brad Pitt is going, this is the best moment of your life. You're going to come out of this as a different person or whatever. You should be appreciating this. I think what's lost in modern life and the source of the unhappiness and the fighting is we don't have enough struggle. We don't have enough good pain. We don't need the fight club kind of pain where we're beating the shit out of each other. But we try so hard to be comfortable that we deprive ourselves of the good experiences. And that's why F.I. isn't about comfort. It's about doing the work, having these struggles, doing the puzzles in life that give you satisfaction. Like, How good does it feel at the end of the day to... Maybe Carla in your life to have solved a problem for a client or Robert in your life to solve an engineering problem or have a client sign on the dotted line for the the kind of work you do. Uh, It we need those struggles in life. And when we don't have them, I think it just leads to boredom and depression. I I think of this personally with my dad when he lost his job, he was so unhappy. And I think it eventually he's since passed away. And I think it did kill him because... He didn't have that meaning, he didn't have those struggles. he didn't have the day to day satisfaction and uh I think that's probably the main thing I took out of fight club and the most important thing don't don't go too far. the project mayhem you don't need that kind of <laughs> people. Uh, i no spoilers, but don't don't do that listeners, but embrace the work. that's why we always hear the re- internet retirement please with. Uh call bloggers, and maybe even us because we're here doing work, but this is the kind of work we enjoy. This is the struggle we're trying to get better every time, and we need that in our lives,
3: yeah, I think it's that's really what it is all about is you know do something that challenges you personally, do something that's really important to you, and don't worry about what people are telling you you should do and what you should have, and what your apartment should look like
2: so I really like the part. In the movie here, and Brad Pitt's speech, where he says, "You know, we all see our lives through TV and movies," and I, I didn't remember this before. We didn't think about this when we're putting together pennies and popcorn, but that's really what our show is all about, right? It's helping to sort of dispel this idea that what we see on television and movies isn't exactly reality, and and it's kind of fun to sift through that and look look for the signal from the noise.
3: Yeah, I. Completely agree. We do get this just constant mainlining message that, you know, you need to look a certain way and you need to have certain things. And you get it from all over the place. Certainly advertising, as Brad Pitt points out in his speech, but also from everything you watch on TV and movies. You know, Fight Club is unusual in its aesthetic, right? Everything is grungy and dirty and everybody's okay with that. Like that's part of the appeal of the movie, but most movies present this super clean, super fancy veneer that when you see that all the time, it just makes you think, well, I'm not good enough if I don't look like that or if my life doesn't have that particular look.
1: Yeah, I've been watching a lot of Hallmark Christmas movies, A Little Guilty <laughs> Pleasure, and yeah, my sense of reality is a little bit skewed right now.
3: As it should be.
1: I'm expecting like a prince to come and save me. Yeah. To maybe Santa as well.
3: Yeah. Just find a nice little gazebo to sit in, sip your coffee, and the woman of your dreams will, you know, just magically appear.
2: You might just be a side character in this movie.
0: (laughs) Unfortunately, yeah. Christmas is coming, Doug. It's not too late. Maybe you'll have a Christmas miracle.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I... I've seen a couple of the Hallmark Christmas movies, mostly at your parents' house. And the the theme of those is often like, quit your big corporate job, prioritize love. So maybe they're not as bad as we all think.
0: They
2: yeah, are. maybe Hallmark should be the you know, the banner for the F.I. movement rather than Fight <laughs> <Pi> Club.
0: <laughs> Do they always go in on the one way, that gender neutral thing? Hopefully it's not always a man coming to... Save the woman like you just described, Doug. Hopefully Hallmark movies are more advanced than that. Or maybe they aren't. I've never seen one. <laughs> they have a pretty tight formula. I don't
1: think they really vary too much.
0: Okay. But there's <laughs> there's never a gender. Like I saw Taming of the Shrew once and they did a gender reversal where the male and female reverse our characters, which was kind of cool. I no none of that in Hallmark where the female comes to bail out the male. I haven't seen them all. Okay. So it could happen. I don't know. I think I've seen
2: one where there's a powerful <laughs> attorney or doctor from the big city coming to save the frustrated lumberjack.
0: Right. Are, are, is that, wait, is that the Hallmark movie or is that your life, Robert? <laughs> <laughs> little column A, little <laughs> <beat. laughs>
3: All right, guys, any closing thoughts on Fight Club?
0: Yeah, I think everyone should see the, the film. I think it's got some really, really powerful messages. And um, it goes a little bit too far, as we've alluded to. You don't need to do some of the stuff in the movie, but nah, just be who you are and don't care. I, I like your point a moment ago, uh, Carla, how we spend money to throw up a veneer or a facade. Why not just be who we really are. And then we'll have people who really like us would rather have someone who likes the person you pretend to be, or likes a person who you truly are. Um, be yourself. You don't have to spend money and be happy, embrace the struggle. And,
1: you know, we covered all the consumerism a lot. And I think one of the, one of the scenes that we didn't talk about is where they go and they basically hold up the convenience store clerk, Raymond K. Hessel or Hassel something like that. I think it's Hessel, yeah. And that's a profound scene. Very, I mean, crazy shit, right? But basically, that dude is going to take action towards his dreams. So that, I mean, that really spoke to me. And I think, you know, knowing that we can die at any moment and like... Move towards like whatever, I mean, whatever you think you need to move towards, like take some action and and move in that direction. And, you know, that scene always stuck with me from the first time that I saw it. And it's not really related to consumerism or anything like that or financial anything. It's more like follow your dreams and
2: don't just sit there and like slowly die second by second. So that clip, it's funny you bring it up. We actually made a clip of it and we've thought about making a fifth one in the episode and we've learned through some of our recordings that it just gets a little bit too long and it just landed on the cutting room floor but i totally agree and i think it does fit with the the financial side of things because it's all about chasing your dreams versus dealing with your current realities and you got to make you got to move forward you can't just stay with the inertia that you currently have if you want your life to be better or different or to work out the way you originally hoped for
3: Yeah, uh, I was reading a book not too long ago that I think I actually talked to you and Elizabeth about, about stoicism. And one of the things they talk about in there is that it's actually really healthy and positive to contemplate your own death on a pretty regular basis because it's the ultimate motivating force is to, you know, keep in mind that this is a limited time we have here on earth and we've got to make the most of it. I think Steve Jobs was a kind of a proponent of that too. He would like look in the mirror every morning and remind himself like this could be your last day. And it's I mean it sounds so bleak and awful on the surface, but when you really think about it, it's actually a a way to try to enhance your life and just maximize your utility of every moment that you have. So, I think what Brad Pitt does to poor Raymond K. Hustle in that scene is obviously not the ideal way to motivate myself <laughs> to live, live your dreams. And it actually, it makes me think of um, those Saw, those terrible Saw movies that you forced me to watch at least one or two of. Oh, Robert. An upcoming
2: pennies and popcorn show for sure.
3: No, because I mean, I'd have to watch it again and I can't. I can't. But those Saw movies, they have that same um, principle of this, you know, maniac is torturing and maiming people all in the name of some twisted ideal to like motivate them to live their lives in a better way. So obviously one does not need to take it to that extreme, but I think for the average, you know, hopefully healthy minded person, it is a good idea to remind yourself that life is short and you got to make the most of it while you're here. So I think that's a great scene. Glad you brought it up. All right. Do you have any final thoughts?
2: No, just enjoyed the movie and I enjoyed the chance to connect with everybody on it. It's, it's fun to have. Uh, a team to share it with thanks for having us on
0: yeah thank you so much this was great
3: all right thanks so much guys we'll catch you later